What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion on this uh, Tuesday afternoon here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. Maybe that's you. Maybe you are a non-Catholic. Maybe you're a, a Presbyterian or a Baptist or Southern Baptist or a Methodist or whatever. Maybe no religion at all. And uh, and yet here you are listening to this Catholic net- network and you're thinking, well, you know, I've got a couple of questions about the Catholic faith. Well, we can answer those for you. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us in Denmark, well, <clears throat> all you have to do is uh, dial the U.S. country code, 1, and then 205-271-2985. And, of course, you can always send us an email. We'll get to one of those in a second. The address, CTC at EWTN.com, CTC at EWTN.com. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Kapinski is our phone screener. Rich Jesse is handling social media for us. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, well, just put that question in the comments box, if you would. Rich will see it, and he'll say, hey, let's send that to the studio. He'll send it to the studio. We'll get it. Hopefully, we'll answer it on today's program. Uh, Again, our phone number, 833 288-EWTN. I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Very well. How are you, my friend? I'm hanging in there. Thank you. You're a good man. Here is a question from Elaine who says, Dr. Anders, I am a cradle Catholic, but I must confess not very knowledgeable in some Catholic topics. My question for you today is, what do I say to someone who says he's a theologian but believes that only Catholics will be saved? Thanks, Elaine. Well, he he might be a theologian, but he is not uh, one that holds with the Catholic faith, right? Ah. That depends on how you understand Catholicism. If you mean that uh, that uh, you you have to be a card carrying member of the Catholic Church, you know, visibly in union with the Pope and the bishops, then then obviously that's false. You you can you can not be in that condition and still be saved. However, if you are saved, you uh, you you are you're a member of Christ, even if you're not in visible communion with the church, and and so we can uh, the church distinguishes between those um, those that are members of Christ in the sense that they are people of goodwill who seek to live according to their consciences and to know the truth about God that is discoverable by reason or from their circumstances. All those people can be called Catholics in a very extended sense. And then there are those that are more properly called Catholics in the formal sense of having a, an explicit conscious communion with the Pope and the bishops through the Eucharist. Um, yeah, if he means it in that broader sense, well, then, yeah, we could agree with him. If he means it in the more narrow sense, then the Church says that's wrong. Well, there you go. Appreciate that. Thanks so much uh, for your email. Here's one now from Nicole. As I was reading the Catechism, I came across a question regarding indulgences and penance. In the section on the final purification and purgatory, the Catechism states, quote, The Church commends almsgiving, indulgences, and works of penance undertaken on behalf of the dead, end quote. 
I would like to understand more about the role that we play in the purification of the dead. How would I know if I've done enough for my deceased loved ones? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So the way this works is simply that God allows people to pray and intercede on behalf of others, the righteous on behalf of the wicked, uh, the living on behalf of the dead, and that's intrinsic to what it means to be in a relationship with God, that you know God distributes his grace to people through human instruments, and purposing to be one of those instruments through whom God makes his appeal to others is, is part of what the vocation of being a Christian is all about. And it's a beautiful part of the Christian vocation because it unites us to one another in charity. Uh, in terms of the question, how can you know? Well, you can't know, of course. You can't know. Um, and uh, what what you don't want to do is fall into a kind of slavish uh, neuroticism where you feel like, oh, if I if I let up on saying this rosary, you know, every every 15 minutes for the next 36 years, then then somehow souls are going to slip away and be lost and it'll all be my fault. That that would be the wrong attitude. That'd be a neurotic approach. Yeah. I mean, d- devotion is a joyful experience of the love of God and neighbor and uh, and has more to do with with our uh, with the charity in our heart than with the frequency of our mechanical repetition. And so if if it is a habit of yours to pray for the dead, I'll tell you a, a good way of doing it. This is, I mean, uh, you could do more than this, but it, I, I try to do this. We always remember the dead at Mass. And so you're supposed to be an active participant of the Mass. So when we get to that part of the Mass, just remember your loved ones and your friends that have died. Yeah. And if you just if you you go to mass all the time, if you make that part of your regular mass routine, you'll never forget to consciously pray for the dead, and you'll really be fulfilling your your duties in that regard. Okay, appreciate that, and uh, thank you so much, Nicole, for your email. Here's a question now from Patrick, who says, "Dr. Anders, why do some churches not distribute the sacred blood along with the body? Shouldn't they both always be part of communion?" Yeah, I appreciate it. So, first of all, no, they shouldn't always be distributed to the lay faithful. And uh, it's helpful, I think, to step back and re- and reflect on why the 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 sacrament of Holy Communion is celebrated in two kinds. That's the technical way of saying that there's bread and wine. Yeah. When the other sacraments don't have matter divided in that way. I mean, baptism doesn't have like water and you know Coca-Cola. It's just water, right? Um, and each, you know, the, why, why the two kinds? Why the two kinds? And the, it, the reason has nothing to do with needing something to drink with your bread. That is not the reason. The reason that there are two kinds of matter in the sacrament is because the, uh, the Eucharist represents the separation of Christ's body from his blood, visually represents it. When we, when we observe the consecration of the elements, and the priest says, this is my body, this is my blood. You see that they are presented on the altar in a state of separation. Body over here, blood over there. And that calls to our mind the fact that that happened on Calvary, that Jesus' body and his blood were separated and it affected his death on Calvary. This is the reason that we refer to the Mass as the memorial of Christ's sacrifice, that it, through the double consecration it memorializes what took place on Calvary. And the purpose of the double consecration is fulfilled at the consecration, whether or not anyone communes. Uh. But the communion signals our union with Christ, and that is sufficiently represented by receipt in one kind only. Patrick, thanks so much for your email. We'll get to the phones in a moment. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN, for a call to communion with Dr. David Anders. Do stay with us. 
It's called a communion here on EWTN with Dr. David Anders, ready to answer your questions at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. We find ourselves somehow in the year 2024. I'm still trying to figure that out. But one thing I do have figured out, it's January, the month dedicated to the most holy name of Jesus. You can join us in this devotion to the most holy name of Jesus with books, rosaries, devotional candles, litanies, statues, so much more, available right now at EWTNRC.com. This is why Mother Angelica founded the Religious Catalog, to have those holy reminders in your home, EWTNRC.com. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN, beginning with Bill, a first-time caller in Fort Worth, listening on the great Guadalupe Radio, AM 910. Hey, Bill, what's on your mind today, sir? Well, I'm going to actually answer the question of why I'm not a Catholic. Okay. Uh, I mean, I, I've been trying. I got the books. I listen to you guys and the other podcasts. But I'm really disturbed at the leadership, the lack of leadership that we've got in the church, the bishops and the pope, uh, primarily related to the, uh, the abortion issue. Uh, the popes had more than ample opportunities to address this strongly. Uh, the bishops, I mean, we've got Coleon out in California that's actually, uh, with, you know, withheld uh, the Eucharist and stuff, but nobody's backing him up. They don't get together. And uh, I've got Catholic friends that say, well, the, you know, since there hadn't been a strong uh, enforcement of this, I mean, the Pope had an ample opportunity. I mean, we had Biden and Pelosi at the back. Okay. Okay, I, I, great. Yeah, I think we got the I'm idea. Sure. I really appreciate the question a lot. So um, it's interesting. It's interesting that a person would make the decision to stay away from the Catholic faith because particular popes or bishops, um, uh, he makes the judgment, they don't, they don't do their job right, right? They do a poor job. And uh, the reason it's interesting is because I think you would have to have stayed away from the company of Christ and his apostles if you had brought that criterion to bear in the first century. Um, because, of course, you know, when Jesus called 12 um, disciples, let's see, one of them betrayed him, literally sold him out for money to, to death. Um, one of them denied him explicitly when asked if he was a follower of Jesus, and then after he was reconciled some years later, turned around and threw the Gentile church under the bus rather than offend his co-religionists from Jerusalem. That would be, of course, St. Peter who pulled that move. Um, he had a couple of blowhards in there, uh, James and John, otherwise known as the Sons of Thunder, whose approach to pastoral difficulties was to ask Jesus if they could call down fire and brimstone on their enemies. Um, and then he had good old doubting Thomas, who refused to trust the word of Jesus. So that, that's what. Well, so we got Thomas, James, John, Peter, um, Judas. We're we're you know we're we're bumping up close here to fifty percent almost <laughs> of the disciples as a uh, as a uh, you know a real a real mess of um, of nincompoops, and and not just incompetence but immorality in fact. Uh, and, of course, also we know that Judas was a thief, and he used to steal what was in the money bags. And he was a genuine apostle. He was called by Jesus and given that commission and so forth. So if you take the line that I'm not going to associate with a church where there's corrupt or incompetent or or negligent leadership, I don't see how you could ever have associated with the Christian church. I don't see how you could do that. Um, 
And, uh, and, you know, so when I became Catholic, one of the things I was grateful for is that I had a pretty good formation in Christian history, and I had long since lost any idealistic notions that I might have about, about Christian clergy uh, as necessarily—no, they ought to be, but necessarily paragons of Christian virtue who ought to be emulated, right? And, uh, and that's, that's really never been the way in the Church, right? The, the Church office is just that. It's an office. It's a charge. It's a task that's entrusted to people who are held responsible for their actions. St. Paul talks about that when the Corinthians called him to account. Um, he said, look, I don't care if you folks judge me. I don't even judge myself. It's God who's going to judge me. Um, but he, he goes on to acknowledge that each apostle is going to answer for the things that he does, and God will hold them to account. And if somebody, you know, does right, they'll be rewarded, and if they do wrong, they'll be punished. And he's talking about the ministry of apostles here, right? So there's an expectation that not everybody fulfills the office in a worthy manner. And if they don't fulfill it in a worthy manner, then they'll answer, you know, to God for that, and maybe, maybe go to hell. That's why Catholic poets like Dante um, imagine clerics and bishops and Pope's even in hell, right? So how do you conduct your Christian life if that's the case, if the people who who are bringing us the sacraments and governing us don't actually behave in an appropriate manner? Well, you, you don't take those people as models. You, you recognize—any more than you—I'm you, 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 not going to renounce my American citizenship because somebody of the, in the executive branch does a bad job. You know, right. I, I'll be like, well, you know, I'll wait for the next one. Maybe the next one will be better, Right. Uh, and that's the attitude that Catholics take towards office holders in the church. If you think that one of them's not conducting his office in a fine way, well, you you know you 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 wait for the next one, right? And you hope that you know we get a, you get a better one down the line. Now, I do want to say a word about the particular criteria that you brought to bear, and that is you've you've made the judgment that the absolute duty of the priests and bishops is to approach a public policy issue that has moral implications in a particular way. Right, and you know best that that is the way this should be done. Um, I will say that the church has consistently taught the value of life, the dignity of the embryo, the dignity of the person, and the Catholic Church is the only institution in the history of the world that has consistently taught that for two thousand years. Mm. The only one. Wow. Right. Uh, of course, when Roe v. Wade came about in what nineteen seventy. Um, Southern Baptist Convention celebrated Roe v. Wade as a victory for the separation of church and state. Protestant world didn't get on board objecting to Roe v. Wade until the early 80s uh, with Francis Schaeffer and C. Everett Koop. But the Catholic Church was there before, during, and after from the very beginning opposing Roe v. Wade, opposing the legalization of abortion, and has continued to do that around the world. Only, the only institution on the planet that's taken that position. Yeah. And, of course, John Paul II wrote his magnificent encyclical uh, Evangelium Vitae uh, on the gospel of life in defense of the dignity of persons and the right to life. So that's been the consistent teaching of the church. I personally can't form the judgment that I know that every single bishop should have the exact same pastoral response to controversial social issues in their diocese. And the reason I can't form that judgment is because the pastoral implications for how you teach morality and how you seek to bring about moral change in your diocese are going to differ based on the context. And I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to justify or condemn, but I'm going to hypothesize here. Um, what if you are a bishop in a situation where 
your attempt to make a stand and, and draw a hard line and maybe exclude somebody from communion will only be interpreted by the people you're trying to reach in exclusively political terms. And so it will actually end up having the opposite effect. Sure. Instead of reconciling people to the church in its position, it will undercut the dignity of the church's moral catechesis because it will be reduced to a political policy position rather than a position in moral theology. Now, you might say, Anders, that's a stupid argument, and I think bishops are dumb if they take that position. That's fine. You can make that judgment. Maybe you're right. All right. But it's, but it's an intelligible position, and it's one that a person could make in good faith, in good conscience, fully believing in the dignity of a person, wanting to teach that, wanting to implement that in their diocese, but believing that there might be a different pastoral approach other than the one that you infallibly know is the only one allowable. Well, Bill, uh, there's a lot for you to unpack, think about, pray about. If you'd like to hear it again, check out the podcast. Charles will have that posted for you in a couple of hours at EWTN.com forward slash radio. Thanks so much for your call from Fort Worth. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Carol is in Tennessee listening online, EWTN.com. Hey there, Carol, what's on your mind today? Well, um, it's about the Pope, <laughs> again, our favorite subject lately. I think I can handle most of the objections of what the Pope was supposed to have said. But my sister-in-law, who is extremely anti-Catholic, came up with a couple of new ones. I need some help. I'm going to read to you what she said in her email. The Pope doesn't believe in hell. I have no idea where that came from. So that's one. Here's another one. Doesn't believe in trying to take the gospel to the Muslims. Okay, those are my two questions. Where where did those come from, and how do I counter those? Okay, thanks. So to begin with, um, I, I personally don't want to be drawn into conversations about the Catholic faith with antagonists where the integrity of Catholicism hangs on my defense of a particular personality, right? So we just had a call a second ago about, you know, the good and bad judgment or the good and bad behavior of bishops and popes. Uh And it is never the case that the truth or validity or integrity of of Catholicism hangs on the personal opinions or behavior of a particular pope, because I mean we've had we've had popes that were horribly scandalous, and that ever that's common knowledge. We had two hundred years in the Middle Ages without a single canonized pope. We've had popes that were mm-hmm. tremendously saintly, holy people, have been canonized and venerated in the church. Mm-hmm. We've had the other kind as well. We've had popes that taught the doctrine of the faith brilliantly and compellingly. Uh, we've had others that were utter nincompoops that made the faith look ridiculous because of the way they taught it. And I, that's just part of being Catholic, right? Uh, and so I don't ever want to think that I'm necessarily obligated to defend, you know, what my parish priest or what my bishop or my pope does, unless that defense hinges on the very nature of papal authority as such. So like if the pope makes an infallible dogmatic declaration, for example, then I'm, then I'm bound in conscience to believe what the pope says. Otherwise, I'm not. And I'm, it may be various degrees of dissent that may be allowable you know, from what a pope or a bishop has to say. Um, 
so that I, I really think you, you're getting off on the wrong foot in these conversations, and and uh, and I, I think the you need to change the focus of the conversation to something that's a little bit more central to Catholic identity than what some particular pope says or does. Um, I I uh, I understand your sister-in-law's positions. I don't necessarily agree with them. I understand where she's coming from, uh, because let's take the Muslim question. The Pope has been emphatic in his uh, insistence on ecumenical outreach to Muslims. Right, that we need to make uh, show them goodwill and and presume the best of them and that sort of thing. And wh- why might the Pope take that position again? When it when it comes to a matter of pastoral prudence. You're allowed to disagree with the Pope. You don't have to think he's right. right. But why Why might the Pope take that approach rather than a more kind of aggressive proselytism? Well, how about, say, 1,300 years of Catholic-Muslim relationship in history? So how did the first 1,300 years go in terms of sort of aggressive proselytizing of Muslims? How much headway did we make? Very little. Mm, yeah. Very little. I mean, there are some pretty famous Catholic missionaries uh, to Muslim countries. I'm thinking about, um, you know, Charles Foucault, for example. Oh yeah, right. Who uh, who spent his entire life, I believe, in North Africa, <clears throat> living among the Berber peoples and uh, a life of deep apostolic mm. poverty and penance. And I mean, absolutely, uh, a, 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 a very noble person whose life is was so ascetical and so self-denying that he he couldn't really get a religious order going because nobody could handle the level of abnegation that Charles de Foucault put himself through. He didn't make a single convert in his entire life. Wow. Right famous medieval philosopher by the name of Raymond Lull, another example of somebody who trained and studied and spent a lot of time, went to North Africa, engaged in polemical debate with Muslims. I'm not, I don't think Raymond Lull had a single convert. Um, and, uh, and of course, we've got this uh, centuries-old history of explicit aggressive warfare between, between Christians and Muslims that has cost the life of, lives of, you know, countless thousands of people, millions of people maybe over the centuries. I can't blame the Pope for trying a new approach. And, uh, and uh, you know, if you tell people enough times that they're good and y'all can get along, maybe some of them will start listening. Maybe so. You know? All right. Um, in terms of the Pope's belief in hell, Pope is a Catholic, and he believes Catholic dogma, right? Um, the Pope also believes in God's mercy and uh, and has made a lot of comments about the extent of... God's mercy and the the potential ratio of the saved to the damned that definitely favors the saved. That's a theological opinion. It's not mm-hmm. a dogma. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's one that I think has some sound theology behind it. You're allowed to disagree with that. It's okay. Yeah. All right. And uh, Carol, thank you so much uh, for your call. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Uh, a quick question here as we're going to break. And this is from Conrad. What are the differences in the spiritual benefits of listening to a pre-recorded mass on the radio versus a live mass? Not with respect to Sunday obligation. Just curious about the grace obtained at a live mass versus a pre-recorded mass. Okay, so it makes a difference whether you're physically present to the live mass or whether we're talking about a recording. So the the thing that you can do in a live mass when you're present that you can't do with a recording in quite the same way uh-huh. is offer the sacrifice. Ah. And that is not something that the priest alone does. You remember he says, pray, my brethren, that your sacrifice and mine 
will be acceptable. Yes. Right. The offering of the sacrifice is the is the conscious decision of the whole church in that moment to offer the body and blood of Christ to God the Father in reparation for the sins of the world and ourselves along with it. Right. Um, and I listen to a recorded mass. I can I can reflect on that and I can make a private act of of offering, make a private personal offering. But I'm not joining myself in the corporate worship of sacrifice in quite the same way. Conrad, thanks so much uh, for your email. In a moment, we'll talk with Stephanie in Ontario, Anna in San Antonio. We've got a couple lines open for you at 833-288-EWTN for a call to communion. Stay with us. Hey, what's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Let's talk about that here on EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. couple lines open for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Before we get back to the phones, congratulations going out to another member of the EWTN radio family, Christ Our King Radio. They are in Louisiana celebrating 12 years with us with three AM and FM stations serving Lafayette, Kaplan, and Opelousas. Congratulations to Anne-Marie Moulton and her great team there at Christ Our King Radio. From all your friends here at EWTN. All right, back to the phones right now. Here is Stephanie, a first-time caller in Ontario, listening online, EWTN.com. Hello, Stephanie. What's on your mind today? Hi there. Um, I've been attending Sunday Mass at an Eastern um, Catholic Church, a Byzantine Catholic Church, for about a year. Um, and when I was a baby, my parents had me baptized in an Anglican church. Um, now I'm just wondering, like, can I or should I be baptized again in the in the in the Byzantine church? Thank you. I really appreciate the question. So I am going to presume that your Anglican baptism was uh, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, with water applied to your scalp. That's the normal way that Anglicans do it. And if that was the case, then the Church regards your baptism as valid. And uh, since it's valid, you, you don't do it again, any more than you would marry the same man twice. Right? It, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, right? you know? yeah. um, uh, but uh, but so that's, that's no problem. Now, if you haven't been confirmed uh, from a priest that has valid apostolic orders from a bishop with apostolic succession, which you would not have from an Anglican, uh, then you would need to receive the sacrament of confirmation, or chrismation, as they call it in the East. And, of course, joining an Eastern Rite Catholic Church is a perfectly legitimate thing to do. So if that's your intent, I would say go for it. Is that helpful for you, Stephanie? Yes, it is. Thank you so much. You are most welcome. Here is Anna, now in San Antonio, listening on the great Guadalupe Radio. Anna, what's on your mind today? Hi. Um, thank you for taking my call. And um, My question is, Regarding my son, he's eight years old, and he's preparing for First Holy Communion. Um, unfortunately, he's allergic to wheat, and so the, the gluten-free host that is offered by the Catholic Church is not an option for him. Um, so one option that's been presented is, you know, the precious blood. Um, however, my—and I'm not really sure how to pose the question, but I, I do understand that in 2017, Pope Francis— drew a line in the sand saying, you know, this, this type of uh, wheat-free host is no longer consecratable, not allowed. Um, my question is, why? Why is that? Um, because I feel like with him not being able to participate in that part of the sacrament with 
a consecrated um, host, I feel like you know he is is will be will feel isolated, and I'm I'm really struggling with this. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So, in terms of the doctrine, it is not within the Pope's power to change a dogma of the faith. He can't. You know, he he can't make the sacraments something other than they are any more than he could suddenly make it the case that God was no longer triune. And uh, Christ instituted the sacraments and, and conveyed upon them a determinate matter and form. Um, the matter of the sacraments is literally the stuff out of which you make a sacrament. And in the case of the Holy Eucharist, it is wheaten bread and alcoholic wine derived from grapes. Anything else is what is called invalid matter, and a priest could say the words of consecration over invalid matter all day long, uh, and literally twice on Sundays, and nothing would happen. So, say, you know, rice cakes would stay rice cakes. They would not be transubstantiated uh, into the body and blood of Christ. And so, yeah, this is not within the power of the, of the Pope change. He can't—I mean, Christ didn't tell us, you know, to take pizza and beer, or, you know, or you name it, or rice and water, or any other, you know, solid and liquid matter— he told us to take bread and wine, which is what he used on Holy Thursday. Right, and so we, right. we have to stick to the pattern of Jesus. That's, that's why the Pope took the position that he did. Now, in terms of the pastoral question, how to bring my child up in this, um, the First Holy Communion is, of course, for most people, a, a, a wonderful occasion uh, and a memorable one. Um, I, uh, uh, he, he, he might feel out of place, um, but... That doesn't mean that he is condemned to a lifetime of feeling out of place as a communing Catholic. Um, and there are a couple things to keep in mind. One is that the most important way that we participate in the Mass is not through our communion, but through our offering ourselves along with the sacrifice of the Mass. That's something that most Catholics are unaware of in this present generation, mm, but yeah. it is the consistent teaching of the Church that the most efficacious way in which we go to Mass is not our communing in the sacrament, but of our offering the sacrifice along with the priest and learning to offer ourselves. Because ultimately, that's what brings us to God in heaven, is having that sacrificial uh, pattern of Christ imprinted on our consciousness, that we are loving people who give ourselves in worship to God and, and love of neighbor, and that's exemplified for us in the sacrifice of the Mass. That's, that's what makes the Mass to be so efficacious, is that it exemplifies and demonstrates that and affects it in our lives. Um, when it comes to the communion, again, it is not necessary for, to holiness for a person to commune frequently. It can be helpful, but it's totally not necessary. Um, probably the most celebrated ex example of that that I can think of would be St. Mary of Egypt— not the Blessed Virgin Mary, this is an early Christian monastic, female monastic, uh -huh. who seems to have received communion twice in her life, and but is reputed by the Church to have lived a life of tremendous holiness and, of course, is venerated as a saint. Mm -hmm. And for centuries and centuries, the laity communed only on Easter. And so this, the pattern of frequent communion or weekly communion, that many people do today, is a, is a novelty in, in the Latin tradition and is not essential to holiness. Um, and, of course, in terms of the spiritual reality, um, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ are equally present in the chalice as they are in the sacred host. 
and uh, and you know communicating that to your son is a matter of teaching him the Catholic faith, teaching him what the doctrine is that that he loses nothing of the presence of Christ by communing through the chalice. He loses nothing, and and gains nothing by communing in both kinds. He is not closer to Jesus in virtue of communing in both kinds as opposed to one kind, and he is not farther from Jesus by communing in one kind. An important thing to remember. Anna, thank you so much for your call. We hope that is helpful for you and for your son. Call to communion here on EWTN. What a question this is. Kairos on YouTube checked in and says, how do we respond to the attack that, quote, the beast that persecutes God's people is the Roman Catholic Church and... This beast that enforces the mark is the Roman Catholic Church with the Pope as its head. No, it isn't. <laughs> no, it isn't. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, and the text, the text doesn't say that it is. And, and, of course, this interpretation is a late medieval, early modern interpretation of the mm, text. Okay. Right? I mean, this, there were some, some heretical Franciscans <clears throat> in the 14th and 15th centuries that made the claim that the Pope was the Antichrist. And, of course, that got picked up by the Protestant reformers, Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and the like, and it became a point of Protestant dogma to hold that the Pope was the Antichrist. But, of course, that that doctrine is novel, and the Church has had the Book of Revelation in the canon for many, many centuries before the late Middle Ages of the Reformation. And, uh, and of course, you know, St. Saint, Saint John of Patmos uh, didn't know anything about the medieval papacy as such. I mean, he knew about the papacy, but he didn't know about the medieval papacy, the way it would be caricatured by the reformers. And virtually all biblical scholars who have looked into this believe that John of Patmos was writing about Nero Caesar. Wow. A contemporary of his who yeah. really was actively persecuting the church. And the 666 thing is a, uh, is a, is a, is a dead giveaway because there's a tradition in Hebrew and, and other ancient languages of conveying uh, numbers using letters of the alphabet, just like the Roman numerals stood, in, you know, for the for the for the number system of the Romans, uh-huh. and it's called gematria, and the and the the value in um, in that form of rendering of mm-hmm. the name Nero Caesar is six hundred and sixty six. Uh-huh. So I mean, it just it, it, this uh, the position is a merely polemical one, obviously that people take because they want to reject the Roman Church, but yeah. it, it's got no basis in history or biblical study. Kairos, thanks for checking us out on YouTube today. Call to communion here on EWTN. Uh, you may want to check out a wonderful podcast available now at EWTN's Podcast Central, and it's called Pentecost Today. Steve Hartle, in the most recent episode, joins Steve Mancini and Alicia Hartle to discuss life in the Holy Spirit and his work with evangelization outreach, Nature of Fire. Check out Pentecost today. It's part of EWTN's Podcast Central. Just go to EWTN.com, then uh, forward slash radio. Once you're on the radio homepage, look for those words, Podcast Central, and then uh, click on Best of the Rest which is all of the partners of ours who put up podcasts. we got some great, great podcasts. Uh, I think over four dozen podcasts that are out there now as part of EWTN's Podcast Central. Do check it out. All right, uh, back to the phones right now, and uh, we're not quite ready. Almost ready. Looks like we're almost ready. Meanwhile, here is an email from Nancy who says she has two questions. Number one, when and why did the church change the Sabbath to a Sunday? What can I say to someone who uses Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. 
and then tries to claim that in the 300s, the church fathers, or Constantine, went against our Lord's wishes by changing the Sabbath to Sunday. Thanks, Nancy. Um, yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So the, the problem that you have is that we, of course, never change the Sabbath. Christians don't celebrate the Sabbath. Sabbath is a Jewish holiday. It's a Jewish feast, and it's the seventh day of the week in which Jews refrain from work. They still do that. Yeah. Christians don't, right? What we did is we instituted the Feast of Sunday, which is not the Sabbath kicked one day forward in the calendar. Right. It is a different feast. It is the feast that celebrates the resurrection of our Lord, and the principal act of the Feast of Sunday is not to refrain from work. It is to offer the holy sacrifice of the Eucharist. Now, uh, your friend who makes this allegation perhaps is a Seventh-day Adventist. I'm not sure. Could be. Right. Um, but uh, the, those who take this position misconstrue the meaning of the Sabbath commandment. They misconstrue it to think that the Sabbath commandment enjoins upon us the obligation to worship on the seventh day. When, in fact, the Jewish Sabbath says nothing of the kind. It says nothing about worship. It talks about not working. Not working. Uh Um, And so every day in the Old Covenant was a day of worship. Priests offered sacrifice in the temple every single day, Mm -hmm. but they refrained from work on the seventh day. The Christian Feast of Sunday is principally a day for worship and the offering of sacrifice, especially the sacrifice of the Eucharist, not principally a day to refrain from work. Now, as a sort of ancillary benefit, we will refrain from work, but that's that's a tradition that came into the Church late, because, of course, the early Christians lived in Roman civilization that didn't give people weekends off. No, no. And so the practice of the early church was to get up on the first day of the week, a practice that's mentioned in sacred scripture in two places, both Acts and 1 Corinthians, um, and, uh, and, uh, and to uh, meet together to celebrate the Eucharist and then go about their business, which meant going back to work. Very good. And uh, thank you so much for your email, Nancy. We uh, have a call now from Emily from Saskatchewan. She got cut off a little earlier, but uh, we've got her back on the phone. And here is Emily right now listening online, EWTN.com. Hello, Emily. What's on your mind today? Hi there. Um, My question is, how do Catholics deal or respond to what I've heard called the problem of evil? Do Catholics believe God to be all-powerful and all-good or omnipotent and omnibenevolent, um, then how do they justify the fact that God allows for so much suffering in the world with diseases and parasites and cancer and crippling birth defects and natural disasters? Yeah, I'm sure. And allows eternal suffering. Yeah, I, re- I really appreciate the question. So uh, there's a couple of ways that Catholics deal with that. Um, from a philosophical point of view, the Church's position is that God has a sufficient reason for allowing the existence of evil. We may not know the sufficient reason until the next life. Sometimes we do. We don't always. So let me give you an illustration of how this might pan out. I have a good friend. His name's Bob. Bob's a quadruple amputee. And he lost his limbs at about eight or nine because of a meningitis infection. And he had to have his limbs cut off in order to not die. It was, it was the cost of keeping him alive. Of course, it ruined his plans to become a professional baseball player, which is what he always dreamed of. And he you know, had to go through years of physical therapy and rehab and all kinds of suffering in his life as, in consequence. 
Bob's a Catholic. He's a friend of mine. And he's told me more than once that he regards losing his limbs as the best thing that ever happened to him because in this instance, he's able to find an intelligible reason, a benefit. Namely, it, it, it brought him closer to God. Uh, it improved his character, his moral life, his perspective, his empathy for others. Um, and interestingly, he, he still became a professional athlete. He's a, he's a uh, Olympic rugby player, wheelchair rugby player, yes. and a public speaker. So it, you know, it turned all over out, the world. All over the world. It turned out all right for him. Uh, so in in, in instance like that, we can look at okay, well, you know, th- there was some intelligible uh, reason, some benefit that I can discern, even though this was horrific suffering that no one would freely choose. But look in hindsight, I can look back and go, okay, it turned out all right, and maybe 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 he would choose that path again if he had to go down. But often that's not the case. Often we can't look back in hindsight and say, oh, yeah, I can see the sense in that. And it doesn't seem justified to us. Um, Now, if you grant that there might be a perspective that I currently don't have from which that suffering appears intelligible, that's sufficient to solve the logical problem of evil. And that is, in fact, the Catholic point of view, that God allows evil because he intends to bring out of your greater good. It does not, however, solve what I might call the psychological problem of evil, the existential problem of evil, the pastoral problem of evil, which is the problem that I'm suffering and being given a trite platitude that, well, God's going to bring some good out of it. That does me a hill of beans of good right now. <laughs> yeah. you know, and, it, and, and honestly, it doesn't make me feel close to God at all. Right, it, I find it alienating and and uh, and and potentially insensitive and offensive. Mm. Right, I mean, I get that as someone who has suffered. I understand how that that is not a sufficient pastoral response to suffering. So there is another kind of response that's not a logical response; it's a pastoral response, and it's exemplified by the person of Jesus Christ, who, according to Catholic teaching, entered into human experience, though he did not have to and took upon himself the full weight of human suffering and evil and experienced in his own person every kind of horror or enormity that humans could be subjected to and suffered more than any man, not just through his death on the cross, but through his profound empathy with the human race. And if if you've ever met a deeply empathetic person and a selfish you-know-what, the selfish you-know-what, the psychopath does not hurt when other people hurt. He doesn't care. Yeah. But the truly empathetic soul hurts profoundly when others hurt. Well, Christ was the most empathetic of all souls. So not only did he suffer the indignation and the torture of the cross, but he bore within his own soul uh, the, the pain of all of suffering humanity. And if you have suffered, then you know that sometimes the best response pastorally to suffering is not for someone to come bring you an answer, however logical it might be, but to come sit with you and to bear your burden with you. And so the Catholic's position is that we have the best of both worlds in that regard. We, we have a logical response to the problem of evil. We also, we also have a pastoral response to the problem of evil in the person of Jesus. And then finally, and this, this answer is a little bit more idiosyncratic to me, um, I, I think it's important to recognize that, that although the Catholic faith teaches that God is a person, that we have a pretty rarefied and abstract notion of personhood when it applies to God that is very different from your, your, your lived experience of persons in human flesh, and that God is, in almost every respect, wholly other. And in whatever sense we can call God personal, 
there is another sense that is infinitely distant from our notion of person in which we could say that God is unlike a person. In fact, anything we can say positively about God, we can also negate that to an infinite degree. Uh, This is a branch of theology called negative theology, literally coming to know God through what he's not, Mm. right? Um, And that our knowledge of God is derived from our experience of creatures, and yet we understand that he's infinitely different from any creature. Why that's helpful to me personally, when I confront the problem of suffering, is it it unburdens me of unrealistic expectations. So if I if I think of, say, God's fatherhood on the exact model of my own human father, well, then my experience of suffering is utterly unintelligible because dad would have run and picked me up at the first sign of pain, right? When I recognize that God is in one sense a father, but another sense wholly alien to that conception of fatherhood mm-hmm. and a profound mystery— and that confronting that darkness, confronting the fact of my own ignorance of God and the profound intellectual gulf that separates me from God, that it's in that confrontation with evil and suffering and darkness and confusion that I myself can have a profound spiritual transformation that makes me into a more profound person, more capable of being empathetic and kind and loving to others. Now you're moving into the heart of the Catholic mystical tradition. And you find at the heights of Catholic spirituality, this recognition that it is in darkness, it is in ignorance, it is in apophaticism, it's in the denial of experience, um, uh, denial of the seeming intelligibility of God, embracing uh, the mystery that I can become transformed in charity. And, and of course, then I'm able to do the opposite of giving the trite platitude in response to suffering, but I become much more capable of actually being present to someone in silence with love being my very nature rather than a mere word upon my lips. Uh, you know, Emily, it occurs to me that uh, your question, the way you posed it, uh, is uh, something that a lot of people struggle with. We hope that Dr. Andrews' uh, question was helpful for so, you. So, you know, Mother Teresa, Mother yes. Teresa, who's probably the most celebrated saint of the 20th century, mm-hmm. was a person who perfectly exemplified those last two tendencies of Catholic thought. On the one hand, she was pastorally present to the suffering mm. more than anybody. I mean, she was so present to the hurting. And yet she bore within her own soul this incredible weight, this incredible burden of the sense of the absence of God. And the two are not unrelated. Like her own spiritual trials Mm -hmm. fed into her capacity for profound empathy. Appreciate your call, Emily. Here is Zach in Ontario listening on YouTube this afternoon. Zach, what's on your mind today, sir? Thank you for taking my call. My question is, uh, why Jesus, yes, it was the baptism of Jesus, but my question is, why is Jesus baptized if he has no sin? Yep, and yep it, I can do that. That's a good question. I appreciate it. So it's important to understand the baptism of Christ over against the baptism of St. John. And, of course, the Gospels all open with John the Baptist in the wilderness at the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance and calling people to to. Uh, prepare themselves for the coming kingdom of God. And when you look at John's baptism, it's telling that he does this at the Jordan River, and which is, of course, the, the boundary line between, between the Promised Land and where the people of God had come from in Egypt. 
And the promise that he makes to them is that they shouldn't say that God, that they have Abraham for their father. Because he says God can raise up children for Abraham from these very stones, rather bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance. The significance of John's ministry seems to be that he was calling Israel to deepen its identity as the people of God, to, as it were, pass symbolically again through the Jordan River as if they were entering the Promised Land for the first time, now committed not merely to reliance upon their genealogical patrimony, but upon the faith and virtues of Abraham and not just his, his, uh, his physical seed. And uh, Jesus uh, comes, and the name Jesus is just the Greek version of the name for Joshua. So Moses, as you know, led the people up to the border of the Jordan River, but it was Joshua who led them across. And John the Baptist is like the Moses of the New Testament, who leads the people of God right up to the borders of the kingdom of God and says, after me is one whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. I baptize you with the water, he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Here comes Joshua, as it were, the new Joshua, to lead the people into the real experience of the kingdom of God. And, and so it's precisely that headship role, that taking over the leadership of the John the Baptist movement, but infusing it with spiritual power that explains the baptism of Jesus. So he enters into the waters of baptism not because he himself is in need of cleansing, but so that he might become the head of this new body of the church, these renewed people, this new Israel that commits itself in a radical way to the ethical life as the new way of constituting the people of God. Zach, we hope that's helpful for you. Thanks so much for your call. We've got a number of calls today from Canada. I think that is very cool. Hey, Dr. David Anders, thank you, sir. Thank you, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday right here on EWTN Radio. It's live for you at 2 p.m. Eastern. Uh, and then you can also check out the podcast at any, t- any time. Charles will have that posted for you in a couple of hours here. It takes a, takes a little bit of time to get it up on the web. And the address is going to be EWTN.com forward slash radio. Look for the words Podcast Central. Again, EWTN.com forward slash radio. On behalf of our fantastic team, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Thanks for joining us. Look forward to our next visit. Hopefully that'll be tomorrow on the Wednesday edition of Call to Communion. Meanwhile, have yourselves a wonderful day. God bless.